Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Museum of Communist Terror. The organization aims to provide information about the terror that repeatedly took place under communist regimes in the 20th century and beyond. This talk by museum director James Bartholomew was recorded at the Sydney Institute in October 2018. The opinions expressed are his own and do not represent those of the museum. Please visit www.museumofcommunistterror.com and the Twitter feed at Communist Terror for more information. The following talk is introduced by Gerard Henderson, Executive Director of the Sydney Institute. Thanks for coming along tonight uh, where James Bartholomew makes a welcome first appearance at the Sydney Institute. He's here uh, having survived last week the trauma of uh, the baying hordes of Q&A. He made it out triumphantly and uh, has made it to the Sydney Institute. Now we're very grateful to Tom Switzer and the crowd at the Centre for Independent Studies who have brought uh, James Bartholomew to Australia and um, uh, said that he could speak here tonight. So we're very grateful to the CIS. I'll introduce him briefly. Um, he's an author, a writer, a former leader writer for the Daily Telegraph, uh, currently the director of the Museum of Communist Terror, but also the author of The Welfare of Nations, a quite famous book now, and we've got copies for that both in hardback and paperback for sale after. But right now, I just welcome our speaker to talk on communism, what the young should know. You're very welcome. I have particular reason to be grateful to Gerard because he has introduced me to several people who I've interviewed here. So thank, thank you, Gerard, because that's been very important. Um, I believe that students, millennials on the whole, wish to do good. And uh, they are well-intentioned and sincere, often to, to try and make the world a better place. The problem, I see, as I see it, is that many of them do not know the history of communism. They have not been taught it. It's not their fault. Um, it's not the fault of almost anybody, uh, 40 or younger, that they are unaware. Because the history of communism is grey-washed at best in most Anglophone countries, I believe. I came across it in, in England uh, with a revision guide. I don't think you have them in Australia, but there are such things as revision guides, which you do have them. Okay. So they sort of basically enable you to quickly hurry up. You know, if you hadn't bothered to listen to the course, you could quickly read your revision guide and get through the exam. And this revision guide was about the collectivization of farms, which is one of the few things about communism that is taught in British schools. And this, the collectivization of the farms was an occasion in which millions of people died. Uh, how many? I don't know. Um, 3.9 million in, in Ukraine is the most recent estimate, but there were more elsewhere in the USSR. And this revision guide uh, said you might like to consider what were the pros and cons of the collectivization of farms. It is equivalent to asking what were the pros and cons of the Holocaust. Uh, it is shocking and disgusting. And... Um, uh, this is when it's greywashed. I think the bigger problem, even than the greywashing, is the lack of being taught anything at all. Um, as one of the flyers I put out, she says, 70% of young people in Britain have not heard of Chairman Mao Zedong. It's not that they think badly of him, they just haven't heard of him. He is not taught in British schools. 
They are totally ignorant of him. Um, what else is there? There's um, and, uh, more associate Tony Blair with crimes against humanity than either Mao Zedong or Lenin. Uh, that's because they, as I said, they haven't heard of Mao Zedong, so they obviously had no opinion about him, and most of them have not heard of Lenin either. They've heard of Stalin, but he's taught more, but not so much Lenin. And I think this, this ignorance, which is not, I emphasize again, is not their fault. It's the teaching that's at fault. This reflects teaching um, which is uh, overwhelmingly influenced by teachers who, if not actually Marxists themselves, are, sympath- are left-wing and feel that communism may be an extension of what they think. And therefore they're loath to teach against it. And the, many of the textbooks were written by, by Hobbesborn and other uh, people who were communists. So the, the truth about this history is not in the textbooks, is not in the curriculum. And, I mean, I was in Melbourne giving a short talk uh, last week and spoke to a young student there who's at university. He said one of the lecturers started off by saying, if by the end of this semester 90% of you aren't Marxists, I will have failed. This is in a Melbourne university. Um, It is a problem, the teaching in universities, which I don't know how to solve. If any of you have an idea of... I mean, I, 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 given their, their enthusiasm for Marx, I'd be keen on a purge. But I guess that's not allowed um, and not civilized. Um, but as a result of this non-teaching and grey-washing um, around the Anglo- Anglo-Saxon world, uh, in America, more Democrats, those people who are supporters of the Democrat Party, are now, now have a favorable view of socialism than of, communism, than of capitalism. More have a favorable view of socialism than capitalism. This is in the United States, which people still think of as being a free market place. In Australia, 58% of millennials, this is according to work done by the CIS, I think, uh, 58% of millennials are favorable to socialism. 58%. But tellingly, it's worse among those who've been to university, where the figure rises to 63%. That's what they're being taught. I think it's fair to say that most of them probably don't see socialism as Marx said and meant it and intended it. Marx intended socialism as a kind of stepping stone to the ultimate utopian state of communism. I don't suppose they are even aware of of how Marx saw it, and they probably have a, a rather less formed, less clear, articulate idea of what they mean by socialism. Um, but nevertheless... I think it's, there are others who are Marxists. And if you were going to be conspiratorial, you would say that the ones who are sort of sympathetic to the vague idea of socialism could turn into the useful idiots, as Marxists put it. The ones who will not object, who will let things go by. And meanwhile, the determined core, the vanguard, as in Leninist theory, the vanguard will take them forward, these useful idiots, and use them and have their way. Now, the question that I've been asked to address, which I found interesting addressing, is what do they need to know, these millennials? What is it they don't know they need to know? Well, my first answer to that is an awful lot, because they know so little. They've been taught so little. They, they need to know the true histories of communist history. They need to know the history of the Soviet Union. 
they know, need to know about the carve-up between the Nazis and the Soviet Union of Poland, how they divided it up as if it was a cake. They need to know about the famine in Ukraine. They need to be familiar with the word Holodomor, which is the word that has now been coined to describe that famine in which 3.9 million people died. They need to know how the Soviet Union crushed the revolt in Hungary in 1956 and then crushed the revolt in Czechoslovakia in 1968. They need to know about Stalin's purges. They need to know about the Great Leap Forward, which is one of those phrases which tells the story that is opposite of what resulted. It was a great catastrophe with more than 10 million people dying, starvation, a grisly end. They need to know about the killing fields in Cambodia, the list goes on and on. So I would like them to learn all of that and more. But um, I will, I will did now move to telling you one or two specific stories. Because I've, as Gerard's helped me talk to some people, and I've found others. Here in, here in Australia, you have individual stories here. Um, and I've been able to interview six people, of whom five had direct experience of communist rule. Um, the one who did not have direct experience was somebody who was here as a student, uh, I believe as a student, Gerard knows him, and he was going to go back to Cambodia, and was invited to go back, but uh, Gerard, among others perhaps, advised him not to go back, because the Khmer Rouge had just taken over. So he didn't go back. Eight other of his companions did go back, they were all killed. Three members of his family were killed. Members of his wife's family were killed. It was the most, the highest percentage of deaths of the, out of the population took place in Cambodia. I, um, I spoke to Amy Lee, and she, I don't think she's here, but uh, Amy Lee lives here in Sydney. She's one of our members, but she's not here tonight. Yeah. Um, Amy Lee is actually my age, as it happens. She's with, born within a month of me. And, and that particular personal detail made me think when I was talking to her, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Her experiences uh, were horrific. She experienced directly the Cultural Revolution. Now, not many... These are, by the way, these are an, an extraordinary resource you have here in Australia. These people who directly experience communism. And I urge anybody with the interest to interview these people as I've been doing and do it. Obviously, I'm only here for a temp short while. But these, these, are, these are people have history in their heads and pictures too. And it should be recorded because it is part, part of world history of great importance. Anyway, Amy had a, before the Cultural Revolution, she had a friend called Sally. These are, these are girls of 16. And Sally was not such a good student and Amy was a very good student. And they paired up students who were good and not so good together so that the good one could help the less good one. And Sally asked to be paired with Amy. So they were friends. They would come to Amy's house and they would do their homework together. Amy's mother would treat Sally as her daughter, you know, as a, in a friendly... She was treated as one of the family. They were divided at that time into red people and black people. And here, I'd, I'd, I must say, I was learning things here. I didn't know, know this. They were divided into red and black. The red were the peasants and children of peasants. They were the good people. The black were people who were bourgeois or the children of bourgeois or professionals. They were the black people. And this apparently didn't make much difference to begin with, 
But after the Cultural Revolution, Mao gave instructions to the to people that the black people should treat with disdain and in a cold way those who were black people and be warm and friendly to the red people. It was identity politics, if you like, taken to an extreme. And, and after that moment, uh, Sally did not look Amy in the face, let alone talk to her or go to her house. It was a complete rupture between them because Mao had said that there should be a rupture. But it got much worse than that. Sally was there when they ransacked the home and took away all the furniture from the home of, of, of Amy. And then when, um, when the Red Guards were told <coughs> to rebel against authority, Sally was among them. So um, the teachers in the school were made to run round a track, run round and round and round, until they dropped. And when one of them dropped, they were, they were beaten, beaten with a belt using the buckle end. Uh, one of the, the girls, the younger, younger girls, were made to watch this, and one of them vomited. You know, it would be a 15-year-old girl. She vomited. So the Sally went up to her and told her to eat her own vomit. And this... I mean, that scene develops, I won't go on about it. It's really, really horrible uh, what people were asked to, to eat as, as kind of punishment for not being, for, for fainting or being ill or finding it hard to take. The head teacher of the school, headmistress, was a, had at the time a, a party member who was there to sort of monitor that the school was all right. Apparently they were both very nice people and much loved by the children. Amy, with other classmates, was herded into one room and had to stay there the whole night. Nobody told them to go, so they didn't dare to go. Next door, the headmistress and the party secretary were being beaten by the Red Guards. Um, the party secretary said, you shouldn't be doing this. The more she said that, the more she was beaten. So she heard the cries of these, the headmistress and the party secretary for hour after hour, and until eventually, 10, 11 o'clock, they died down. The next day, she saw a white coffin being brought into the school and the head teacher, the party secretary was taken out because she had died of the, uh, as a result of the attack. These were 16-year-old... Children as young as 16 were carrying out these attacks and killing, killing a, a woman. <coughs> I want to then mention another person who I've met here in Australia. It's called Nyan Din. I met him in, in Melbourne. He comes from Vietnam. He uh, was in the South Vietnamese Army. So, unsurprisingly, he was told he had to go to a re-education camp when the communists were victorious in, uh, in South Vietnam. He was told he would go there and it would be ten days of re-education and then he could get on with his life. That the communists wanted to incorporate everybody, use all these talents, and they, you know, it wouldn't be vindictive. After ten days, he wasn't let out, so he thought maybe it's going to run as long as two weeks. After two weeks, he was kept in, so he thought maybe it'll be as long as a month. He wasn't let out for six and a half years. Um, and one of the interesting things about this, um, this particular story is that what upset him was not his own treatment. And I found over and again with talking to these people that it's not what was done to them that really brings tears to their eyes. It's either something where somebody showed that somebody loved them, or else it is something where they saw somebody else suffer. And in this case, Din, who was a former soldier, no sentimentalist, he was concerned about a fellow prisoner 
who had also been told it would only be ten days, and he had left his children temporarily with somebody, and after the tenth day he was worrying terribly about his children and getting more and more agitated about what had happened to his children. And, and interestingly, that's what brought tears to Din's eyes. There's another woman I've interviewed called Chi, another Chinese. She was sent to a Lao guy. I don't know if you've heard of a Lao guy, but it means reform through work. Reform through work, which I found chillingly reminiscent of the, of the, the, the sign over the concentration camps. The work makes you free. Um, it is sort of sick. This was, I mean, just as Din said, this was not a re-education camp, this was a concentration camp. And similarly, what Chi went through was a mixture of propaganda and hard labour. She had to carry, go down many, many steps down to a beach, pick up sand, load it up on her shoulders, and uh, lift, go back up those hundreds of steps, take it to a building site, and then do it again. She was fed very little. When she came out, she weighed 45 kilos. These are just snapshots. I'm, I'm, I'm very aware they're just snapshots, but I think it's worth telling a few s- real stories of individual people to bring it home. Otherwise, it's just numbers. And people are sceptical of numbers. They're less sceptical of seeing a video of somebody who actually experienced it. But the question that I'm going to now address is, is the question that Gerard asked me. What do millennials need to know? And I thought one of the things they should know, in addition to the story, is the common features, because I've been looking at, I'm not expert in any of these individual companies, countries, but I'm, I know I've come to see familiar things over and over again that happened in, under communist rule. So there are very familiar features again and again, not always absolutely all of them, but the vast majority. First feature of communist rule is that it is not democratic. Uh, I mean, it, for you, people of, many people of, uh, of my age, you won't need to be told any of what I'm about to say, and I apologise for what I'm saying. You know, you probably know it. But it needs to be spelt out now because the younger people do not know it. So that's why I'm spelling it out. They were not democratic. And one of the prime examples of this is the, is the Russian Revolution. In October Revolution, when uh, Lenin and his friends took over, um, they, held, they held an election afterwards, uh, which they had promised, and they did have, have that election. But the result of the election was not what they had hoped for. They, they, they were, had a minority. And the parliament nevertheless convened, and they, uh, they found that the vast majority of the people there were not Bolsheviks and were opposed to their policies. So Lenin was not happy about this, so he closed the door of the parliament, and they weren't allowed to come back. There was a demonstration of 40,000 people to complain about the fact that the parliament had been closed. He turned the machine guns on them. That's how the Bolsheviks achieved power and established power for themselves, not for anybody else. Another common feature is terror. Terror is normal in practically every communist state. I think, in fact, you probably could say every communist state. It is common sense to be terrified if you live in a communist state. Um, Lao, I referred to Lao Gai, where, where Chi went. You know why Chi was sent there and worked there all her entire 20s, from 20 to 30? She was there for 10 years because in a private conversation she had said to a friend, 
that maybe the famine that had taken place in the Great Leap Forward, and maybe the government could have done better on it. A friend informed on her, and she spent 10 years in that work camp as a result. That's all that she'd done. The result of this, of course, is that you don't know who to trust. So you've got to imagine that you can't say what you really think to a friend or a family member. You've even got to think twice about saying something to your wife or husband or even your children who have been told in many cases that they should inform on you. The, um, I interviewed a woman in, uh, in Germany, in East Berlin, in the, in, the, um, in the Stasi prison there, who had been an inmate in the Stasi prison. And one of the special things about East Germany was that they managed to get all the files without the Stasi being able to destroy them first. So this is a very special resource. And Germans were allowed to go and look at their own files. She went to look at her own file. Fifty-four people had informed on this woman. Fifty-four people. And in Vietnam, I've been, I've been told by the, the one Cambodian who luckily did, did not get killed, that the children were told to go under the under the uh, under huts in the, in the, in, the, in in Vietnam and listen to conversations in case they could hear anything that was counter-revolutionary. So it follows from this very obviously that free speech is impossible. Things I'm just talking about things that we take for granted that are just not possible in communist states. Free speech is impossible. You endanger your freedom certainly, and quite possibly your life if you say what you think. This even extends to art, music, and certainly literature. Um, Shostakovich, I went to one of his concerts quite recently, and he saw in the, saw in the notes the most extraordinary thing. He had done, he'd done a previous piece of music. He went to the Fifth Symphony. He'd done a previous bit of music which Stalin had regarded as not communist enough. Didn't conform to communist ideals of what music should be. So he was very nervous, uh, as particularly as he did the Fifth Symphony, but he, he was so nervous about being arrested, and arrests were so common and normal, that he decided he would start sleeping outside his flat. So that if, he was, if the black car came in the middle of the night, which was the usual way of arresting people, his family would not be disturbed, not distressed by his arrest. It would take place without them realizing it. That is a measure of the terror. Another feature... Oh, this is absolutely universal, is propaganda. Propaganda is totally relentless, and everywhere, there is, because there's no free speech, all you get is the government line. In fact, once I remember when I was travelling through the Soviet Union in 1982, being told, told by somebody that the way to read a Pravda story was to, read, to skip the ten paragraphs about how everything was going brilliantly and the production was going well and targets were being met, and then get to the, you know, somewhere near the bottom where most people wouldn't get, said, unfortunately in some areas, blah, 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 that was where the few, sto- the real story would be. In Vietnam, I went to be with somebody in Washington from Vietnam, and he told me that when he was young, there were loudspeakers on every street corner putting out slogans, you know, long live Ho Chi Minh, uh, down with the Americans, the Americans are killers. It was relentless. And one of the things... You may think, you know, they, they, they just hated that. They didn't mean anything. didn't make any difference. But the, the disturbing thing is that it does have an effect. If you're only told one thing over and over again, 
human beings are not so clever and so sceptical that without any other knowledge, without any source of information, they were able to regularly build a counter view. The older ones, yes, but the younger ones, that's practically impossible. And the two Chinese that I've interviewed here in, in, uh, in Australia, both one of them became a passionate believer that she had been bad for saying the remarks she did about the government and the famine. She became a model prisoner every evening, criticizing herself again and again and again for her, her terrible behavior and seeking to improve and become more revolutionary. So she totally believed propaganda. It was only after she came out of prison where all the things she's been told in prison she realized just were not true that the, the scales fell from her eyes. The other one, uh, Amy, she, she told me that she didn't she, she, she went along with it. She, she didn't really have the equipment to doubt that this was the right thing, that Mao was, was, was terrific, etc. And when she went to see Mao in a big Tiananmen uh, meeting uh, she was excited. All the children were jumping up and down with excitement. They had been told nothing that, but that Mao was their great leader who had, had made their lives as good as they thought they were. And of course, propaganda you know, is well known. It re- resulted in cults for both Stalin and Mao, um, who were you know, pe- responsible for, for more deaths. They were among the biggest mass murderers that the world has ever seen. But they were regarded and revered by, by the vast majority of the population. One of the techniques of their, their propaganda is demonization. So whenever anything goes wrong, it's nothing to do with the communist leaders. In the case of the famine, it's a natural disaster. In the case of the collectivization of farms in, in the Soviet Union, it was the kulaks. These were peasants who might own uh, a bit of land, maybe a piece of equipment, maybe employ one or two, two other peasants. They were regarded as they, they must be the cause, and there was a whole campaign against the kulaks. And then the, the communists start blaming their previous uh, friends. And one of, the sti- one of the things I've got out there is about what happened to the members of the first Bureau. So there, were, there was Lenin, and there was Stalin, and then there were five others, and they were all shot or executed on the orders of Stalin. So if you were someone, if you were known to be a Zinoviev sympathizer who had believed in a communist leader, that would be death under Stalin. If you were a Bukharinist, you know, that was a crime. So they not only turned on you know, enemies who were not communists, they even turned on their own. It was very dangerous business to be a member of the Politburo. Um, another feature that is universal is economic underperformance over and over again. And one of the most, uh, I mean, there are many demonstrations of this. I mean, you had the, the twins, you had the North and South Korea, you had the East and West Germany which demonstrated very graphically to anybody who knew both places the difference in the capitalist performance and the communist performance, which was so extraordinary. And one of the most famous maps in the modern world is the map taken at night of Korea. I don't know whether you've seen people here have seen it, but it is an extraordinary map because you have the southern half of the country ablaze with light at night because of all the economic activity, the people going out to nightclubs, people's homes, and so on and so forth, that provide light in normal countries all over the world. But above the the line, it's only a few specks of light. It's the difference between light and dark. That is the difference in economic performance. Another feature that is perhaps not so well known, but is probably universal in communist-ruled countries, is the corruption. The corruption takes more than one form. Uh, but 
people I know who've got out of, of uh, Vietnam, they all say they had to bribe officials to get there. Another form of corruption that takes place, and indeed to get services. You know, when, when, when you have a services rationed, like healthcare in, in the Soviet Union, if you wanted to actually get treated, you had to offer something to get, uh, get, to, you know, get to the front of the queue. Otherwise, you could be waiting in that queue forever. You know, these people had a monopoly. They had total power. If you want to get served, you have to give something extra. So it could be gifts, it could be cash, whatever. That's a habit which those countries got into, and indeed they're having trouble getting out of it. They're still among the most corrupt countries. And then there were the shops, special shops, only open to party members. So most people would struggle to get enough food. They would join any queue that was going. I actually happened to be in Irkutsk in 1982 looking for fresh fruit. The only things I could find were two stale, small lemons. That was the only fresh fruit available in Irkutsk. And in Romania, I saw a chilled cabinet, which A, wasn't chilled, and B, had a few tins in it. And that was it. Um, these were economic disasters. Uh, they really were terrible failures economically and for the well-being of everybody, not just the rich, for everybody, the poor, the medium, those people struggling to get enough to eat and certainly get enough healthy food to eat. The extreme of corruption is when the leaders, and this is not universal, but certainly happened in many cases, where the leader indulges himself to the full. And Ceausescu is perhaps the classic example of this. He built a giant palace for himself in the centre of Bucharest. This is over seven square kilometres of built-up town. Countless houses were destroyed. 37 factories and workshops. Two monasteries. This was... The, the, the building consists of 1,100 rooms, many of which are enormous... Even now, they cannot find a use for all those rooms. And um, it was an obscene example of spending literally over a billion dollars or billion pounds on a building for the vanity of one man. That seems to me to be an extraordinary level of corruption. When you're talking about inequality, Ceausescu really defined it. I've left to last the, the most, in a way, the most obvious and important thing, the deaths the deaths. I mean, I don't think that millennials know properly about the deaths. The calculations are very difficult to make, and they're constantly being refined, particularly from the Ukraine, where we now got better information. Those ones that cease to be communist, we get the better information. Those ones which still have at least nominally communist rule, it's very difficult to get it. But the estimates of the number of deaths under communist rule are in the area of 80 to 100 million people through starvation, torture, execution, assassination, horrible conditions in camps. I've talked to two, two women who were in gulags where they were freezing cold, where they had very little protection, very little clothing, and uh, they were not treated if they became ill. Uh, one woman, her twin, she was born in a gulag. I interviewed her in Moscow. This woman, her twin brother died. Her, her, her father um, had he already served 10 years, when he was told he would have to serve another 10 years, died. She's not sure whether he, as well, let himself die or what. But many of the people who were sent to the prison camps died, and uh, many of the others who didn't die were marked for life. That particular woman says that even now she always keeps bread in the house because she remembers so vividly as a child just being hungry day after day, longing for bread. Why did all this happen? 
Why did all this happen? I mean, this is the, a question which, in a way, if you don't know the answer, then you can't stop it happening again. And it's a very difficult question to answer. And I, various people have tried different answers. I, I, don't, I can't give you a complete answer, but I, I, my, my best attempt starts with the, the doctrine, the Communist Party Manifesto, which explicitly says that a violent revolution is necessary and right. It's explicit about that. It explicitly does not require democracy, is not interested in democracy, because they say the justification is that the bourgeois will resist. Therefore, it is, you have to be violent. And he also, he also says, and Lenin takes this further, that even the workers don't really understand their own interest. So they can't be relied on entirely. It has to be this vanguard of committed communists who will lead the, the workers to their, to, the, to their own best interests, which they don't fully understand. So they are, as it were, they're licensed to be violent. They're licensed to kill. They, the righteousness gives them the entitlement to kill. And they do it. And then it gets to the point, as in Mao's China, where you know, the more revolutionary you are, the better. If you're not showing, you're showing yourself to be truly revolutionary, then you are suspect. So they all, in this, in this, in this reign of terror, they all have to be more revolutionary than thou. It is all justified to get to a utopia uh, because of the bourgeois resistance. It is, as it were, morally necessary, even morally compulsory, to kill. Anybody who doesn't do it is being weak. What to do about all this? Well, my, my, uh, I visited the House of Terror with my wife who's here, and uh, after that, I found a very powerful museum, and I thought, why don't we have that museum in London? Why don't we have a museum that will remind people for generations to come, that will, as it were, inoculate generations to come against the risk of going down the same path, of unknowingly going down a path which would lead to disaster. Um, that's a big job, very big job. I've realised that more and more, the more I've tried. And my immediate need is just to get a chief operating officer three years with an office. So that's, you know, it has to go build up in steps. That would be the next stage. In the meantime, what I'm doing is, number one, to record interviews with people who will not be around forever. These, are, these, these interviews on high-quality video will be, whatever happens to, whatever progress I made, this, these will be a permanent record and available to others. Second thing I'm doing is beginning to acquire artifacts. Some are more easy to find than others. The most desirable ones are actually personal letters. But in the meantime, I'm getting... Uh, communist uh, propaganda, anti-religious anti propaganda from the Soviet Union, for example, uh, guns, the Stasi, uniform of the Stasi, and so on and so forth. I'm seeking to get speakers at schools who can talk about their specialist knowledge, and um, one of them actually is an art historian who, um, who, uh, who, writes, who talks about how you, you risked your career if you espoused any Western art, if you, if you were a Moscow art uh, curator. And one person's career was ruined because he did that. Another thing I'm doing is social media. These interviews that I'm doing go onto a website, onto Twitter, and to Facebook. And so the website, should you be interested, is www.museum of communist terror. The Facebook is, unsurprisingly, at museum of communist terror. And the Twitter account is just at communist terror uh, and you know, these are building up gradually more and more supporters and these what we do is we take the long interviews which last as long as an hour or more and then we edit it down 
and give context so that it's just two minutes and 20 seconds maximum. So these you can see on the website. Um, they uh, are professionally edited with lots of background music and, and other, other material. And one of them, which is about a man who did not believe Marks and Spencer was not a party shop. Um, uh, that was a, actually, a, this is a, a true story. It's a, a British MP who came from Ukraine and he became an MP, and he was able to persuade the British Foreign Secretary to persuade the Russian Foreign Secretary to allow his father to come from, U- from Siberia, where he'd been sent to work, to come from there and visit London for two weeks. So this, this gentleman came over, quite elderly, and, he was, and, his, and the MP took, it, took his father to Marks and Spencer. And the father said, this is for party members only. And uh, the son said, no, no, it's, it's open to everybody. And um, the father didn't believe his own son. And so the next morning, the father said, OK, take me back to that shop. It w- it, the shelves will be empty. They don't know I'm coming. <laughs> and so he took him back to the same, same shop, you know, Marks and Spencer, overflowing with produce. And the man was just astonished. He could not believe that these shops were open to the public. That particular video has been, because it's easier to take, than some of the grim stuff that I've been talking about, has had over 100,000 views. And it's largely not through, uh, because I've got a lot of followers on the sites, because people who, supporters who agree with this, have agreed to retweet it. People with a lot of followers, like Dan Hannan, Matt Ridley, Toby Young, people who are well-known in England have a, you know, tens of thousands of followers. They've retweeted it, and it's been retweeted in turn, and it's been, and it's been I, mean, I think it's fair to say that people have thought it's good, and they've retweeted it again. So... Two other things I'm hoping to do. One is teaching materials, so that teachers will have material to teach with. I see Gerald standing up, so I'll hurry up. Um, change. I would like to work at the curricula of schools and universities. And I just briefly say there's a connection between welfare states and and communism. Two connections. I've brought, because I've I've written books about welfare states, so I'm particularly on my mind. What is the difference? What is the connection? There are lots of. In some ways, they have similarities big state, but the big contrast, there are big contrasts, very, very different things. For instance, Stalin abolished unemployment benefit. Now, that's a big difference with welfare states. They're not the same thing. They're not on the same graph. They are distinctly different. The second thing is that it is the welfare states were created partly, the history of them, partly to avoid the risk of communist takeover. If I've got to start the, the, this book with the, with the secret meetings that Bismarck had where he revealed what his true motivation for starting a welfare state in Germany was. Returning to communism, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, I find it very worrying. I hope it won't come to the worst. I'm not aiming to do any propaganda. I'm only seeking to tell the truth. The truth is terrifying enough. Thank you very much. <laughs>